We've got an all-star panel over here of two physicians and two bankers and, and, and you. Uh, but, uh, but we had to include Peter, so Peter's there as well. Um, so uh, Peter Kaiser from the Cleveland Clinic. Um, Some comic relief, right? Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as well as uh, Jerry Lee from Goldman Sachs, uh, David Eichenbaum from Florida, and Greg Butts uh, from B of A. So we'll have a very lively discussion, and what I'd like to do, because we've got a fairly diverse audience over here, is to just kind of level set. And I just kind of want to take a 50,000 view of, foot view of where we are with retina. So I'll just go through a little bit from, from, from my point of view where we are, a little historically, and then we'll dive right into the questions uh, with, with the panel discussion. So uh, here are the people that we have as I, as I went through. So where are we with retina? You know, I'm old enough to remember that we were really nowhere with industry. We really didn't have anything in the early 2000s. And then something happened, and that's something, as far as at least I can remember, was Visudyne, right? So Visudyne happened, QLT happened, and then there were things that became more and more exciting, and companies came in, companies like Pfizer, for instance, not just the BNLs and the Alcons that were there. So new companies, new large companies came in. And then we had Macugen, and then we had two blockbusters that just couldn't lose. It was the approval of Lucentis, that was in 2006, and Regeneron Bayer uh, in 2011. And I remember talking to someone old like Peter uh, and saying, you know, we both thought that, you know, look, this, this is not the end of it, right? Angiogenesis is really complicated. Yeah, I've got none. Um, is, is not complicated. It's really complicated. It couldn't just be uh, anti-VEGFs. It's got to be something else. So we said, you know, any time now there's going to be another blockbuster, and that was 30 years ago. So then we had these massive failures. We had Lampolizumab. We had Fulvista. And then suddenly something started kind of happening, which is that companies started exiting. We don't have the Mercs and the Pfizers anymore. And recently we've had some disappointments, be it mixed results in GA or wet AMD um, or, or other things. And we wonder whether these companies are actually going to come back. Um, if you look, for instance, at the pipeline with the top ranked products in ophthalmology, it's not surprising that the top two are in retina, Ilea and Lucentis. On the top line is the current sales, and the bottom line is the sales projection for 2026. And what may surprise you is that both of them are projected to have a loss. The revenues are going down, right, in 2026. If you look at the top 15 companies in ophthalmology, it shouldn't surprise you that the top five are very much involved in retina. But what it may surprise you to see, other than Regeneron, is that all of them are projected to have a decrease in their revenue, which may surprise you, at least it did me. If you look at it from a target point of view, with the wet AMD landscape, you know, Ilea seems to be sort of the penny that just doesn't go away, right? It continues to win and win and win. And no matter how much we talk about other mechanisms or no matter how much we talk about durability, Ilea is still the king. Now, that may or may not change with Faristumab, and I think one can argue that the ANG2 part may or may not have a big contribution, but Ilea certainly continues to win. I find diabetic retinopathy to be really interesting. The two things that everybody can agree on is that there's a huge market and anti-VEGFs are simply not enough, but then we don't have anything else. Whether you look at the, uh, the, the drugs that were tried before and have failed, uh, it still seems to be a huge market with a problem with route of administration, problem with compliance and ineffectiveness 
Now, although there's a great unmet need there, so the opportunity certainly is there. Now, dry AMD may or may not be different. Uh, fortunately, we've got a clear target and a clear endpoint via the FDA for geographic atrophy, but things are not so clear for intermediate AMD. And for geographic atrophy, truth be told, we're slowing down death. We're not actually preventing death from occurring. And it's not clear, at least to me, where we are in terms of the primary endpoints with intermediate AMD. We also heard today that there may be issues with compliance. There may also be issues with functional outcomes. Um, and these are all true. But here we've got three companies, uh, Apellus, Iveric Bio, and Alkius that are in phase three programs. But there's a whole bunch, a whole bunch on the left side that you see uh, that are in the pipeline. So where does this leave all the strategics? And today you've heard in the previous panel about money, about uh, what, how to get capital and so on and so forth. But really what drives all of this at the end of the day is the way that many of the strategics behave. So let's just see what they've done. When you look at the strategics in ophthalmology and specifically in retina, the first thing you notice is that there's not, there are not a whole bunch of them. There are actually quite few, far fewer than one would expect. And when you look at what happens or what's going to happen to these strategics, all of them, now Roche may be an exception because we don't know where it's going to be with Ferishumab as yet, all of them are projected to have a decrease in revenue from now till 2026, but all of them sit on a ton of cash. Right? Their cash, they sit on between 30 and 70 billion dollars in cash. So with that in a dry pipeline and knowing that the revenue is going to go down, you would expect their behavior would be to have transactions, acquire technology, but surprising, that really hasn't happened. If you look, for instance, at large deals that were done, say deals with more than $100 million up front, what you'll notice is that we haven't had any in the public sector for the last decade. Think about that. We haven't had that in the public sector for the last decade. In fact, when you look at deals that have been done, more than one deal for one of the large strategics, there are only two. There's Novartis and Biogen, and that's it. There are a bunch that have had smaller deals, but surprisingly, there's a whole bunch that have sat on the sidelines with no deals at all. So what exactly is going on here? And what about the emerging companies? Well, innovation continues, as you've heard all day today. There are a ton of small companies. And these are small. There are only two, which would be Apellus and Iveric Bio, that are valued at more than a billion dollars. But there are a whole bunch of small companies and there's a massive amount of innovation that still continues despite all of that. So where does that leave them? Well, at the end of the day, there's a real problem with capital. So if you don't have transactions and a lot of the strategics are sitting on the sideline and you want to have access to capital, well, one way to do that is to go IPO, but that hasn't fared out very well. If you look at the IPO market and if you take away companies like Spark who are acquired, there's really only one that's been a blockbuster, and that's Apellus. And what happens when a drug is actually successful and you have a problem with getting capital? Well, if a drug is successful and you've got a problem with getting capital, then you suddenly have to turn your company from being a development company now to a commercial company. And at the end of the day, that really hasn't been very successful, as you can see here. There are very few companies that have actually increased their valuation after they switch from being a development company to a commercial company. So let's get back to the panel. You can, you can leave that on or turn that off. So given that 50,000 square foot view, um, well, foot view, Jerry, let me, let me start with you. 
Um, is this a fair assessment, first of all? And what's the impact for both strategics and investors uh, in, the, in the market? We've gone through great successes, and then we've gone through all these failures. What's the general feeling out there? Uh, thank you, Praveen. It's great to see everyone together in a room. I think coming out of COVID, it's, it's been so rare to have the opportunity to actually get a society like this together. So kudos to you for doing so. Um, I might just make one quick preface on behalf of myself and Greg. It's a bit awkward, but obviously we'll avoid speaking to specific names. And to be clear, we're not soliciting or recommending any investments to this audience today. Um, Praveen, it's very hard to actually follow uh, the data you've presented. It's, um, it's very clear when you think about Ilea and Lucentis, these mega blockbusters of five and $11 billion respectively, um, and yet the lack of really proceeding blockbusters that have really occurred since. Um, and now, of course, the focus, to your point, on names like an Apellus or an Iberg Bio, um, when you think about this, effectively, this graveyard of, you mentioned Fovista, you mentioned Lampa, um, not only were they failures in, in the clinic, but I think notably, to your question on strategics and investors, they're really failures in phase three. And I think that's the place where it's probably the most painful to investor checkbooks. It's the most prominent. It's already gone past phase one. It's gone past phase two. High expectations, larger market caps, and then failure. And so I think that littering of that graveyard really has informed, especially to your point, one of your slides over the last decade, really the strategic imperative and their perspective on the overall landscape. And of course, in this related ecosystem, this closed system, the investor perspective. I know on the prior panel, as I walked in, you were already thinking through kind of this, this current landscape in the biotech sphere, where obviously we had an incredible 2021 in terms of biotech fundraising, incredible 2020, uh, 2020 as well. 2022, I think for any practitioner of the audience, it's probably well aware, um, IPOs have been far and few between. Follow-ons have been very, very challenging. Convertibles have been challenging. And so not just in ophthalmology or retina, but really across the biotech sphere, um, there is real unmet need in, in the retina, in the eye. And I think the market demands it. And so I think to one of your slides, when you think about it, it's not the full set of, let's say, 12 plus large caps in the US and Europe, but it's a good, it's a good handful. It's a good handful that have real needs to have follow-on successes, have follow-on compounds, fill up those LOE gaps outside of ophthalmology as well. And so we do, I think, between Greg and I, do expect there to be continued interest from the strategic landscape really across what we're seeing in the eye in ophthalmology and in retina. But I do think, and CNS is probably closest to this um, as an area of unmet need, but also um, real issues in terms of pipeline and clinical failures in the past. But aside from CNS, I, I do think that investors and strategics have always had a bit of a kind of a specter of prejudice, a specter of kind of a higher threshold for actually examining data and thinking about opportunities because of what you've presented. Thanks. And, and, and Greg, let me, let me turn to you. From your perspective, has there been sort of a recapitulation among some of the strategics here of saying, look, let's take a pause, let's just wait in the sidelines, let's not jump into this, maybe we just bit off more than we can chew? Sure. So I think you, uh, you talked a little bit, and Jerry mentioned before, the um, lack of growth within large-cap pharma and large-cap biotech. And we're now in a period, and we'll continue for the coming years, um, in I think probably an unprecedented period where you have large patent expertise and, and billions of dollars that are being lost. So when we think about you know, supply-demand equation and, and the demand from large-caps for growth, 
um, will remain persistent throughout the decade. And that's what's been fueling certainly a lot of the strategic activity over the last number of years. Um, large, large buyers are focused not just on, on products, but products that can add meaningful revenue to their top lines. Again, these are top lines measured in, in tens of billions of dollars. Um, and again, I think part of the reason why there's been you know, generally a lack of activity from an ophthalmology standpoint as we think about M&A is uh, a perception that there are very few large products in the category, with the exception of, of uh, Lucentis, Ilea, and again, the VEGF category. Um, that's why I think there's certainly a lot of investor focus on GA as you know, a next large product category that has the ability to drive very significant revenues for um, you know, companies that are, are developing them or uh, potential business partners. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that uh, focus on, on large products that move the needle for businesses that are facing you know, very large patent expiries um, will, will be the lens at which any of the large companies then look at it in terms of their business development priorities. Um, and again, I think that also focuses on, on why you might see um, companies that haven't historically been in ophthalmology or, um, Praveen, as you know, have exited and then, and then are thinking about coming back into ophthalmology, they do so based on, you know, what are products that can move the needle. So I think that's where the industry is going, which is if there are large products um, uh, or product potential, that's where you'll see large, large strategics you know, then operate given, you know, the, the demand dynamics they have with, with their own business challenges. So, Peter, let me turn, turn to you from a medical point of view. I swear you said bet your house on Fovista and Lampalizumab. So, what, what, what happened? Well, you know, I think what Jerry said is very interesting. He said, you know, big failures in phase three. And, and I would argue that they were failure-oriented phase two. And I think what's really happened is, you know, there's such a push to take things from phase two to phase three, maybe even too quickly, that you're not learning lessons from phase two, or in, in, in maybe in Kodiak's case, even from phase one, where, where you really need to look at the data, both the positive and the negative, don't believe the Kool-Aid, and really design a good phase three. And, and I see a lot of companies nowadays doing phase twos with, with basically unapprovable endpoints. So, so they'll come out, they'll do something, and you know they, they reduce injections or something like that. That, that's not something that Wiley cares about. And so really, what Jerry said is correct. We had big phase three failures, but, but I think one of the things when you talk to, to smaller companies, really analyze your phase two data. And if you don't know your answer to go to phase three, do another phase two. Because in this space, we need wins, right? That's what we need to, to get the money to come back. So let me push back a little bit. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's easy to say do another phase two, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time, totally right? Agree. So, but having said that, I mean, your point is well taken. And David, I'm going to ask you the same thing. You have a very diverse audience here. You've got investors, you've got analysts, you've got physicians. And both of you, you and David, have done this for a long time. You guys are world experts in this. What are specifically the signs, danger signs, that one should look for? And you don't have to name companies, but can you give me any concrete example of danger signs that one should look for? Yeah, I can, I can take that. You know, I um, have been doing this over a decade now. I trained under good friends of yours and, and Peter's. With, yeah, uh, and you turned Jeff out good Jay. despite that, I know. Yeah, yeah. I think... I think uh, I think Jeff's still out there somewhere doing a little bit of work, Jeff Heyer. Um, anyway, uh, so my very first phase three as a PI was the Fovista trial. And of course, I came off of training where 
Lucentis is approved, and then as soon as I get out, Ilea is approved, and I'm like, everything's going to get approved. It's going to be a party in Retina. And then we begin to see Fovista fail. Shortly thereafter, I was a PI in Lampelizumab, and that failed. So I became very introspective, and I called my mentors, and I thought about and talked about what went wrong. And there are things you can look for. You know, like in Fovista, the control group overperformed. Look at the control group. That was a specific issue going into phase three, why the phase two was probably less valid, as you pointed out, Peter. In Lampelizumab, in phase two, you went back and looked specifically at CFI. You know, this was not a pre-specified endpoint in phase two. And, uh, and more recently, you mentioned KSI, and you, I think you hit the nail on the head, Peter, jumping right from a phase one to a phase three without figuring out what that Q12 week kind of time point was going to do for that drug could have been elucidated in a much less costly phase two, perhaps. So you got to, you know, and, and this field of drug development and discovery is fraught with failure, as I've learned and as a lot of the folks who've done this for a very long time have known. Um, but you can kind of look for an orderly yet painful path towards approval. You need a valid phase one that's safe. You need a phase two that meets pre-specified prospective endpoints, you need to repeat those in a large phase three. And when you begin to monkey around with it, or you have a bad control group, or you're looking at post hoc analyses or subgroups, I think that's where you can not repeat the failures of the past when funding the projects of the future. So, uh, Peter, anything else to add with those concrete examples? No, I totally agree. I think, I think, I mean, everybody wants to be successful, but at the end of the day, what, what people like myself, you, others, uh, do is is you got to look at the failures. What are the the patients not doing well in phase two, and why are they not doing well in phase two? And is there something we could either you know improve the inclusion criteria to enrich the ones that worked versus the ones that didn't? There's so much you can do between phase two and phase three, um, but but most of the phase three failures could have been predicted. So Greg, now that we've gone to the past, let me go to now and the near future. So what's going to happen? Is there going to be a dominant effect with the first success or the first major success? Are, are these other companies, and again, use Merck and, and Pfizer as examples, but there are many others, are they going to come back in? What's going to happen? Sure. So I, I think going back to the point I made before, which is the, the, the characteristics that drive their interest are uh, the you know, de-risking that occurs through you know, pivotal development, and, and again, um, you know, given the, the number of failures, mid-stage, late-stage, that has you know, shrunk the you know, denominator of, of, of assets in companies that are strategically relevant. Um, so I think, as we've seen now um, in the last few years, you know, the, the majority of, of M&A activity, business development activity, is coming um, with uh, de-risk, you know, clinically and in certain cases, uh, commercially, uh, companies and assets, uh, and I think that's the you know the, the profile that will drive um, those that are in ophthalmology or in retina, as well as those that are not uh, into the field. And I think you're also, um, and I think Jerry will, will, will certainly have a view on this, um, seeing uh, growing interest amongst smaller relative companies, so what we'll describe as mid-cap companies. They're public, they have significant market caps, but they may not be described as, as a large-cap company um, that are increasingly looking uh, externally uh, for um, 
drugs or, or companies to, to acquire to fuel their growth ambitions. Again, they have the same or facing the same issues that the larger companies do, which is maturation of products, patent expertise. Um, so I think we see them as being as relevant, maybe not with the same uh, financial uh, firepower as the larger companies do, but we see them being as relevant uh, as part of the, the universe of what you describe as strategics. And again, I think that's what we're going to see in time, uh, more and more activity. But Jerry, welcome your, uh, it, your it, thoughts too. And, and Jerry, let me also modify that question uh, just a little bit, because when I hear Greg talking about de-risking, what I hear in my naive sense is I hear a lot of companies with a lot of cash that are staying out until there's positive data and then they're going to perhaps do something. But has what we defined as do something and positive data changed? In other words, is it enough simply to hit the primary endpoint or do you have to be overwhelmingly positive in certain diseases? And does that mean that there are some companies, maybe some companies out here and elsewhere, that will have positive data but may not quite get the exit that they, that they want or would have gotten in the past? I think it's a great question. I certainly agree with all the comments that Greg made. Um, I think Praveen's referring to kind of a, a theme in large cap pharma M&A around the idea of always being willing, maybe even happy, maybe even thrilled to pay 10 times as much tomorrow on the back of certainty than any price today. Part of the reason for that is there's really no appetite for egg on the face. And part of the reason for that is there's almost infinite capacity across large cap biopharma. You've seen probably the superlatives around $700 billion of dry powder, $1.1 trillion of dry powder. And so there's really kind of no limit as to how much people can spend, but there is a limit as to how much embarrassment I think a large cap pharma can actually stomach at any price. So that's a little bit of just background on what Praveen's talking about. Going back to, I think, Praveen's slides and my own response to that, which is just there is a bit of prejudice, a bit of skepticism, a bit of skittishness kind of across the space over the last 10 years, just given some of these very late stage and very prominent failures in phase three. When you think about Praveen's question, I think it's very important, which is putting aside the question as to is the goal even to sell or not? That is a question. It's not in and of itself a priori, uh, always a goal. But if that were to be the goal, what is the threshold for the cleanliness of the message, the cleanliness of the data to actually have someone want to move on you? I do think in this space, it is probably relatively high. And so data is not literally binary. I mean, failures of clinical trials, you can argue, are binary. But data itself is really not binary. There's a full spectrum of infinite points of gray in terms of what's, what's really spectacular data. What's great data? What's good data? What's OK data? All of these could be positive trial readouts in terms of hitting the endpoints. But they, in and themselves, may not then be able to underlie that valuation on the buy side, those DCFs that Greg and I run to really understand, can this be something where you can actually afford to pay a 75, 100, 150% premium? And so I do think, Praveen, to your great question, there is probably a, a higher bar on the back of even clean phase three data heading into potential approval, thinking about what does that data actually mean for the commercial potential, and therefore, what can I pay? Yeah, and, and I think to, to take that a step further, which is it's not just, again, is this an approvable product, um, but increasingly, um, what's the payer environment? Uh, and ultimately, is this a product that uh, will we'll find utilization uh, in a world, again, if we're thinking about transactions today, looking out the next 10 or 15 years, that will find support, you know, whether it's a, a government or, or a commercial payer. Uh, and again, the difficulty that you know so many companies now, in terms of 
um, commercializing products outside the U.S. Uh, again, you're seeing that across therapeutic categories where the bulk of sales, the bulk of profits, uh, sit within the U.S. Uh, and I think certainly a growing view, and Jerry can comment, that um, you know, most strategics now how view that Europe as a place to do business um, may in fact be a loss leader uh, or certainly a very, very um, or less attractive relative to the U.S. just because of the pricing environment. Again, remind, rewind the clock 10 years ago, I think that was a different environment than we're now looking and thinking about with our clients you know, looking ahead 10 years, which is ultimately the, the viewpoint that anyone's going to make when thinking about a strategic transaction. So in the last few minutes, David, let me ask you and Peter, I'm going to ask you the same thing, same question. What are you going to be offering your patients in five years that you're not able to offer today? So it's a really good question, you know, and, and I think that the, the cool answer would be gene therapy, but I think the story is yet to be written on gene therapy. We're not there yet to say this is what's going to be happening in five years. I think in five years we're going to be doing intravitreal injections. You know, will we be doing something more novel? Will we have something else to put into the approved port delivery system? Possibly. But I think things are incremental. I would love to see something like a gene therapy or a cell therapy, but this goes back with regards to my consideration and caution and conservative approach to science, you know, it's a little bit of the Missouri, the, the show me state type of thing. I'm on the west coast of Florida and everyone from Missouri drives down to the west coast of Florida. It's like Missouri on the Gulf Coast. Show me the data before I can make a claim that I'm going to be transitioning my intravitreal injections, which are extraordinarily safe and effective, over to a surgical gene therapy, which we do a lot of at our site. And I'm very excited about it, but I'm just not locked down on it. Where, where are my patients? Thousands and thousands of patients, millions of patients in the US, $11 billion worth of patients with ILEA have done pretty darn well. So in five years, I bet I'm still going to be doing a good number of intravitreal injections, probably some different ones, perhaps some for GA, and hopefully some gene therapy or cell therapy or something novel, but we may still be doing clinical trials for that. Great. Peter, same question. You know, so, so let's just hope for a lot of these things. So in wet AMD, I hope that we'll have a sustained release TKI. That's my hope. Um, how it'll get approved uh, will remain to be seen because anti-VEGF is a very high bar. But I think the six-plus months that a TKI offers is very exciting in that field. Um, gene therapy will be a, probably around, but gene therapy at what AMD, I think, I think the holy grail of gene therapy, at least with an anti-VEGF, is, is diabetes, in my opinion. It's not, it's not wet AMD. So I'm not going to use that in a lot of my patients. Dry AMD, I'm hoping we'll have maybe two intravitreal injections, but because of that, that's sort of chapter one. I'm hoping chapter two is some sort of sustained release or gene therapy or something for dry AMD because so complement modulation, we'll call it. We don't know if inhibition is the best or if it's improved, you know, given CFH or CFI back is the better approach. We don't know that yet. But I'm hoping that we'll have sustained release chapter two in dry AMD. And then for diabetes, really if you think about it, diabetic macular edema is a subset of diabetic retinopathy. So I'm hoping we have a diabetic retinopathy management. Maybe it's a pill, maybe it's a drop, who knows. But, but something that's easy for my patients to do and I don't have to give them an injection, that's what I'm hoping. So we'll see you know, which one of those comes aren't, through. Aren't you hoping for any GA therapies? I'm sorry? Aren't you hoping for any GA therapies? GA? Yeah. What's that? G <laughs> I said dry AMD. Were you not listening? <laughs> I, <was>. I, <laughs> I never do. Um, thank you, Greg. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Peter. It's, it's, we certainly live in, in very, very exciting and interesting times, but clearly,
history has shaped where we are, but where we're going, I think, is even more exciting than where we've been. So thank you for staying for this, and thanks to the panel. And thank you for us and uh, Maureen and...